Well, this session is, I consider, one of the most important ones that we will deal with. We're in the exegetical portion of the course, but also we're going to look at interpretation. So this is the part where we come to conclusions, where we come to formulate interpretation. Now, it doesn't all come at once. It's somewhat of an iterative process. You'll have some initial conclusions you'll make about a text, and as you make more observations and you work, you will revise those and you'll refine it. But when you're done with the process, you should have a good understanding of the passage that you're looking at. So we're in this portion of the course, and one of the reasons I think it's the most important is because not this hour, but the next hour, we'll be looking at Word studies, one of the most important areas that you can get into in terms of the exegetical process. So we're looking at the science and art of interpretation. We've looked at observation, and we've separated and isolated observation. This is simply taking notice of what is in the text. What do I see in the text itself? It involves perception, not just words and sentences, but a little bit more thought concerning the content of every text. You're sorting already. You're already beginning the process of interpretation, but you're still in the observational stage. And what I mean by sorting is you're beginning to prioritize. In other words, what are the most important things I need to think about in this particular passage? So that's what perception involves. The next stage, and we'll isolate this as well so that we can understand it. Again, in the actual process, you'll go back and forth, observation, interpretation. In fact, you won't even, in your thinking, you won't even think about separating the two. But we want to separate the two to be clear on it. Interpretation, what does the passage mean? That's the bottom line. The meanings. See, we're getting to meaning. We're getting to conclusions. We're beginning to try to understand what the author intended. And that's the essence of it. The essence is seeking the author's willed meaning. What did he intend? Not what is it that I want the text to say, or not what my denomination says, or not what some book might say, or what some pastor might say, but we're seeking what the initial author intended and willed. And since we believe that Scripture is inspired, we recognize that there's actually two authors of every passage. They're never in conflict, but we need to remember that there's a human author, so we take into account all of the things dealing with the human author. And behind the human author, we recognize because of inspiration Whatever is written is also written by the Holy Spirit or by God himself. So we have two authors, and the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, but there's never a contradiction between the two or a conflict between the two. That's the concept of inspiration. So we're seeking the author's willed meaning. This is the most important and central aspect of the exegetical process First of all, the reason it's so important is we're dealing with communication that comes from God, God himself. So it's the highest of any communication that you can think of. 
No authority, no human, no angel has communication that is more important than that that comes from God. So we want to do diligence in treating it and always be conscious that we're dealing with God's Word. So we don't take it lightly. We take pains. We uh, put lots of effort into understanding and trying to get at what God intended to communicate, the divine author. It's also important because we're dealing in Scripture with eternal issues. Eternal issues are at stake. Not just eternal destiny, but also the whole range of human issues, all relationships, all things relating to God and man, all of these are at stake, and we want to be clear on them. A misunderstanding of Scripture is a result of a lot of things that go on in the church that are not biblical at all. So we're dealing with eternal issues. And thirdly, it's important because there's always the danger of false doctrine. And the Bible is very clear in warning against false teaching, false doctrine, false teachers, false apostles, lots of passages, both Old and New Testament. So the danger of false doctrine, false doctrine comes as a result of a failure to properly interpret or accurately interpret. And there's a, there's a difference between making a mistake in interpretation. We all make mistakes. But when we talk about false doctrine, there is a line that we would classify as something that is actually contrary to scripture and is classified as false doctrine. And the Bible speaks of some severe discipline that can come when false doctrine is entered into. That distinguishes the cults from orthodoxy. So we all make mistakes, but there's always that possibility of false doctrine crossing that line. Let me remind you that what we are attempting to do is treat the text in what we could describe as the scientific method. And you remember the history I gave you on that. The scientific method actually comes from exegesis, and we're just simply applying what students of Scripture have done over the years, over church history, and it just so happens that uh, historically the scientific method came from the process that we're looking at. And I use the analogy of science and exegesis. We've looked at observation, and when it comes to observation, the scientist makes observation in the natural realm, or the creation And from these observations, he will form a hypothesis. The exegete, or the Bible student, makes observations instead of the natural realm. He makes observations on the biblical text. What is in the text before us? What did this writer try to communicate? The process is the same. Observation. And we've completed that portion, and now we're going to move into generalization, the second stage of the scientific method. Scientist forms a hypothesis. That hypothesis then later is tested. But at this stage, you're forming the hypothesis, generalization. And in exegesis, the correspondence there is we are making a generalization concerning the text. We call that interpretation. And in the initial stages, this is initial, and you might revise it as you continue to make observations and go back and forth. That's what the scientist does. He might form a hypothesis and then revise it, 
rethink it, rewrite it, make more observations, and continue to refine it until that hypothesis satisfies him, and and then then he goes about testing it. We'll do the same thing. After we complete our portion of interpretation, we want to do some verification, as the scientist does. He puts the hypotheses to a test. And in a similar way, we will do the same thing. We don't call it a test, but we call it some work of substantiation. And what you're trying to do is just verify or substantiate the work that you've done or the conclusions you've come to. And primarily, this is where commentaries come in and other useful tools, and we'll talk about that as well. The place of commentaries, as I'll emphasize when we get to that point, is after you have done considerable work on your own, enough observations, enough thinking through, coming to some conclusions, and then then the commentaries are most useful. Unfortunately, many in the church jump to the commentaries, and what that does is that short-circuits the whole process. And now you are more inclined to see things from the perspective of the interpreter or the commentary. So it's best to do as much work as you can on your own of observation and generalization and wait till the third stage after considerable thought and work to begin to go to the commentaries. Then they become more useful, so that's the place of verification. We'll talk about that when we get to that stage. And just to complete our scientific method, after the scientist comes up with principles of science, then the fourth stage is utilizing those principles, utilization. In science, that's that's what engineers do. They take principles of science, principles of the natural realm, apply them in designing structures, machines, computers, whatever the engineering area deals with. So that's the applicational stage, and in exegesis we call that application. And then the final stage is after an engineer designs a structure or a machine, then it is built in the field. That's construction stage. And the expositional stage is the corresponding area in exegesis. This course won't deal with that stage. And just a reminder, because this is this is the goal, this is the most important part of the whole process, this is what we are designing our study to come up with. Mickelson says, to find out the meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers or readers, and then thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. This is the expositional stage, the last part of the sentence. So we're looking at the meaning that the author intended and the meaning that the first hearers or readers understood. So if it's outside of that realm of possibility, the realm of what the first hearers or readers could have understood, then we're probably off in our understanding the passage. If the author could not have intended such an understanding, then again, we're off. So we're looking at the author's willed meaning. Now, I've shown these slides before, but it's we need to kind of constantly remind ourselves, this is the bottom line. This is the essence of the grammatical, historical, contextual method, seeking the author's willed meaning.
and everything is designed to produce an understanding that corresponds to what the author intended to communicate. Here's a statement that I could make. Most of you don't know me very well, some better than others. If I made this statement, I'm a big Lobo fan if you haven't figured that one out. <laughs> Nothing would please me more than to see the Lobos win a Mountain West Conference Championship. And those of you that are more spiritual than me <laughs> would say, Nothing would please you more. You mean you would rather go see the Lobos win a Mountain West Conference game than somebody come to Christ? Well, okay, what is the meaning of nothing here? Am I using that word when I, if I would make that statement, and I just did, nothing would please me more than to see the Lobos win a Mountain West Conference championship. Does nothing in this context mean absolutely? In other words, above everything else. In other words, all spiritual things, seeing people come to Christ, seeing you all grow, seeing all of you get A's in this class, would I rather see a Mountain West championship by the Lobos than any of that? Well, knowing me and knowing my interests and my passions, you know when I make this statement, when I'm using the word nothing there, I don't mean it in an absolute sense. And that's what we're getting at. We're trying to figure out what did the author intend, and in this case, when I would say this, I would say this with all sincerity, and what I mean, with a little bit of hyperbole, what I mean is, as a very high desire, this is what I would like to see, but not in an absolute sense. And this is the same thing that writers or speakers in Scripture do. Let me give an example from Jesus himself. Where, in this example... Jesus means the very opposite, or he's communicating the very opposite that you would think on the surface. For example, in Matthew 12, verses 41 and 42, this is Jesus. He sat down opposite the treasury. Remember this little incident in the life of Christ? He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums, large quantities. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Now, we won't get into the denominations here, but that's the translation. Okay, we have large sums in contrast to small amounts. And yet, what does Jesus say in verses 43 and 44? Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Here's an example where more is less and less is more. But that's what Jesus is communicating here. And we understand that from the context. And if we didn't get it at first, then all you have to do is read verse 44. In 44, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So here's an example of where less is more and more is less. But you understand it because there's enough in the context to communicate that. Particularly, verse 44 makes it clear. So Jesus actually, here's an example of interpretation where Jesus explains what he is intending. I think even if you stopped at the semicolon there at the end of verse 43, I think you might be able to figure out what Jesus was meaning anyway, 
But if you did not be able to figure it out, in verse 44, he makes it explicit. See that? So when he says, large sums, small copper coins, it's proper to understand he's talking about this is larger than this on the surface superficial sense, but when it comes to sacrificial giving, less is more than the large amount, large quantities. So this is what we're getting at. This is what we mean by what did Jesus intend in this context and every passage is like that. Here's just kind of a dramatic example because it almost says the opposite of what you might think on the surface. So when it comes to interpretation, in every case, uh, we have like a circle here that represents all of the possible meanings. You might come up with an idea on this side of the circle here that might be different from what somebody else might come up with on this side of the circle. So you have different possible meanings. What does what does Jesus mean in this context or whatever passage you have in view? So when you initially come to a passage, you may not be conscious of all of the possible meanings, but you're going to fall somewhere in here, somewhere inside that circle as a possible meaning. Everything outside of the circle is just totally impossible to understand. Now, During the interpretive process, what you are attempting to do is to narrow the circle so that you you are narrowing the possibility of meanings. And the more you work at it, the more you are narrowing down the possibilities. Now you've excluded everything out of this light greenish area, the purplish looking area. You've eliminated all of these because now you've eliminated some possibilities and you've narrowed the possible meanings. And you continue the process, I said it's iterative, so you continue to go back and forth, making interpretations, refining your conclusions, such that now you have this circle, and now you have a smaller circle, so you've eliminated more area, and now you've narrowed down the possible meanings to this green area. But there's still possibilities within the green area, and ultimately, by the time you complete your interpretive process, Hopefully, you will come to the intended meaning of the author, which might represent the bullseye there. This is what the author intended. And now you've eliminated everything else. Now, someone else may come up with a meaning over here or even over here. But if you have good, solid reasons, you can argue for this being the meaning where the bullseye hits. Make sense? So this is what we're attempting to do. And it takes the process that we're talking about in terms of sorting and in terms of refining such that we have a good sense that what we have come up with is what the author intended. So that's what we're going to do. Now, in process of interpretation, it is very, very helpful to ask the text questions. And once you get into the process... You'll be doing this without even thinking about it, but it's good to think about it at this stage to kind of awaken within us what we are trying to do here. So let's talk a little bit about interpretive questions that you want to ask the text. We could classify them in three basic areas. First of all, there are what are called definitive questions. And in fact, most of the questions that you ask will be of this nature. 
we classify them as definitive. And what we mean by that is we're just basically asking what is meant. What is meant in this passage? And a definitive question can apply to any of those areas that we talked about in observation. You're coming across a term, for example. So a definitive question is what is the meaning of this term? It may not be clear to you, so you want to be able to think, well, what is the author trying to convey by using this particular word? That's a definitive question. Once you have questions like that, then what you will do at every one of these questions is now go to try to find an answer to that. And if you're dealing with a term, what does this term mean? And we'll talk about that after our little introduction here. Now, maybe that's a term that you want to do a word study on. So you're going to search for the answer to what does that word mean. So that's a definitive question. But a definitive question can deal with any area. It can deal with structure. In other words, what is the meaning of this whole paragraph? In other words, what's the main idea of this whole paragraph? That's a definitive question. In fact, that's what you're searching for. That's the big idea, the big question there. But any particular part, what is the meaning of this sentence? What is the meaning of this subordinate clause? What's the meaning of this prepositional phrase? What's the meaning or the big idea of this whole book? Those are definitive questions. Searching for meaning. What's the meaning of this literary form as opposed to a different literary form? So that's a definitive question. Secondly, another kind of question that you'll probe the text are what are called rational questions. And obviously your most extensive are definitive, but your second area that is also important are, are called rational questions. And by rational, this is the why. Definitive is the what. What is meant rational? Why is this said? What you're getting at is what is the purpose of this? Why was this used? And again, you can ask the, the why question at any level or any range of the observations that we talked about. It can apply to terms, it can apply to structure, any area. In other words, why did the author insert this sentence? It seems out of place in this paragraph. Why did he insert it? So you're getting at purpose with a rational question. Why did he change from a prophetic literary form to a historical literary form. What's he trying to do here by changing forms? Why does he put this in poetry? Why did Jesus speak in parables? Why is he using parables? Now, in Matthew chapter 13, for the very first time, Jesus uses parables. And it uh, somewhat baffles even the disciples. They ask him, why are you speaking in parables? He had never used that before, at least in the record of Matthew's account. Why does he switch? Now, if you can answer that question, I think I have the answer to it, but if you can answer that question, it's going to open up a whole box of meaning for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 12 is something of a pivotal chapter. Remember the literary device of the pivot? And when Jesus begins to speak in parables, it's on the other side of the pivot. So in chapter 12, I see it, in fact, it probably, just to illustrate this, 
You might turn to chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel. Because I want you to observe some things. Uh, I'm just going to point out a few things, but if you read through the whole chapter, you'll see this element in that chapter. And then in chapter 13, now he speaks in parables. And I think it answers the question, Jesus actually answers the question as well. But in chapter 12, if you're following in Matthew, there's two themes that are developing in Matthew's Gospel. One, Jesus is becoming, to some extent, better known through miracles, through sermons, through preaching. But another theme is the growing opposition of the Jewish leadership, scribes, Pharisees, elders, etc. And chapter 12 seems to be the climax, at least in Matthew's Gospel, the climax of that opposition. And let me just read one verse, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus has been performing miracles. Jesus has been uh, teaching. Jesus has been ministering in all kinds of ways. It's become evident. The people have seen it. There's been a great response. And all of that, all that has done is angered the Jewish leaders. And it appears that from this point on, you might read all of chapter 12, but you're going to find out that chapter 12 seems to be pivotal in that it's at this point that they are going to set themselves on a course that ultimately ends in the crucifixion. You see that? Verse 14 kind of captures that idea. They're going to seek how they might destroy him. Ultimately, it ends on the cross. So, the point being is chapter 12, the decision has been made, the nation of Israel has set itself on this course of rejection, and now, beginning chapter 13, Jesus is going to devote himself primarily to the disciples. Everything before that was public. Now, most everything is going to be more private. He's going to deal with the disciples, and he's going to prepare them for his ultimate death. The parables act as something of a transition, and Jesus answers uh, when he's asked, uh, why do you speak in parables? He says two things. One, For the disciples, in other words, for those that are sensitive to spiritual things, they will illustrate truth. But for those that have already made the decision of rejection, it'll hide the truth. So it's actually grace. Because the more revelation that we have, the more accountable we are to respond to it. But they've made their decision, so now the parables are confusing to those that are not believers. And it hides the truth from them. He continues to teach, but now he does it in a different form in order to illustrate truth for those that are receptive. And the progress of Matthew moves toward the cross and Jesus preparing those that are believers, those that are disciples, for their ultimate ministry that they won't realize till the book of Acts, but they are being prepared. And they're being prepared for his ultimate death. So chapter 12 is pivotal and chapter 13 This is why he has selected parables. And if you ask the question along with the disciples, that's that type of question. That's a rational question. Why is this said? Why does he now speak in parables? And a third area of questions we would describe as implicational. You want to ask the text implicational questions. 
What are the implications? What are the implications of this word? And again, you go through the full range. What are the implications of this independent clause? What are the implications of this uh, figure of speech? At this stage, you're asking questions that will lead to application. It goes beyond just the sheer meaning of the text and begins to open up the full range of what the author is trying to accomplish, including application. So what are the implications of this word? What are the implications of this sentence? What are the implications of this paragraph, structure? What are the implications of the literary form that the author used? The whole range. So those are interpretive questions. And like I said, once you get into the process, you, you won't consciously be thinking. You'll just, you'll begin to begin ask these questions just without even thinking about them. And then you begin in the process of asking the question. Now you begin to search for the answers as well. Some of these questions will be answered as you do structural analysis. We'll talk about that later, not this session, but next week. Obviously, we'll talk about, if you're dealing with terms, how do you answer that question? You do word studies. We'll do that in a few minutes. Okay? There are also seven basic questions. You can apply these basic in any passage, but they're especially useful when you're dealing with narrative material. And your seven basic questions are the who, what, where, and when. In other words, who is involved, who is speaking, who's the main character, who is the action acted upon, what, what is going on, what is the plot, what is the setting of this narrative, where is all of this taking place, that might be of significance, when is this taking place, The where is very important in passages like John chapter 4. The fact that Jesus and the disciples are in Samaria, that sets a whole context for everything else in that passage in dealing with the woman at the well. So that would be a very fundamental and basic question to really fully understand where things are taking place in that particular narrative. So the who, what, where, when... Number five and six, how, how are things going, or what's the process involved here, and the why, how and why, why is this happening, is there a spiritual principle going on that explains what's going on here, seven basic questions, and then so what, that's your implicational question, so what, what difference does it make, what significance is it? The first four, the who, what, where, when, are primarily observational, and you can oftentimes figure them out just by simple observation. The how and the why take some interpretation and take further thought, and the so what are tend towards more applicational. In other words, what difference does it make? Or what's the significance, or what are the implications here? That's the so what. So those are your seven basic questions. And like I said, mainly applicable to narrative, but you can ask the same questions in books like Romans and Ephesians and epistolary literature. The who is not as important, unless you're dealing with pronouns that are in the passage, The where, uh, that's usually answered in your book study. In other words, the where probably deals with Ephesians. 
as you can see, it has some application. Don't eliminate it altogether. So those are your seven basic questions. I gave you the three types of questions. And the rest of the interpretive process is a matter of trying to answer these questions that the text raises for you, but that you also ask yourself of the text in order to better understand the text. Some of these, the text itself, will bring to the surface, and others you'll want to probe the text from your uh, study to get the answers. The rest of the interpretive process is answering the questions that you raise. And we want to start with what we could describe as biblical meditation. It's part of the process. The Bible encourages meditation. There are many passages that exhort us and encourage us. And when I say biblical meditation, uh, there is a common understanding of meditation in our culture today that is not biblical. There is the Eastern influence, which is almost the opposite of biblical meditation. Eastern thought is you empty your mind, you open your mind, and you try to open your mind in such a way that you're basically open probably to demonic influence. That's the Eastern way of thinking. Opening, uh, a way of escaping what's going on around you. In some uh, thinking in our culture, it's a relaxation technique where you're just trying to rid yourself of stress, other influences. That's not biblical meditation. So it's not a relaxation technique. It's not an escape. It's not yoga. We'll define biblical meditation basically, simply, it's concentration. So it involves the mental process, concentration, on our Lord and His Word in order to better obey. That's probably a good definition of biblical meditation. So we're, we're focused, we're thinking all the time in biblical meditation. We're concentrating, we're probing, we're asking questions, we're interpreting, we're observing. That's biblical meditation. And it has the proper object. It's not emptying the mind such that you are open to foreign thoughts but it's concentrating on what God has revealed and God himself. Concentration on our Lord and his word to better obey him. So it's a function of the mind and the heart. We talked about illumination and we talked about the Holy Spirit being involved. So there's a, there's a spiritual aspect to it. There's an intellectual aspect. We don't diminish that, but we don't elevate it as well to to the neglect of the heart or the spirit. That's biblical meditation. It's a function of the mind and the heart. We're encouraged along those lines. Psalm 1914, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So it's meditation of the heart. Not just purely academic. Now, sometimes we get bogged down in the details and get overwhelmed with the intellectual aspect. We need to keep reminding ourselves this is a spiritual endeavor that we're involved in the exegetical process. Psalm 49, verse 3, My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart 
will be understanding. There's the two together. Meditation of the heart and the function of the mind, we call that understanding. So the two are involved, Psalm 49.3. Proverbs 15.28, the heart of the righteous ponders to answer. That pondering, concentration, that's mind, but it's the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Here's the antithesis, the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. There's your contrast there. So it's a function of mind and heart. So right off the bat, we need to remind ourselves of the spiritual aspect of the exegetical process. And probably the best passage that lays out the details and expands our definition here is Joshua 1.8, that obviously is at the founding of the nation of Israel as they are about to take the land. And the leadership has been transitioned from Moses to Joshua. And it's the book of Joshua that gives us the historical record of the taking of the land. And thus, at that point, we have the nation of Israel. Not just simply tribes in the wilderness, but now we have a full-blown nation. There's three things that make a nation, kind of a sidelight. Common people, common constitution, that's their law and a common land, land with boundaries. Joshua completes that third phase of the nation. And this is what was recorded. This book of the law, there's the Constitution, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Concentrate. Putting your heart to it. So here's the process or procedure involves concentration, both mind and spirit, concentration. This is the exegetical process. This is working through word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, thought, asking questions, seeking answers. That's part of the meditation process. It also says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it when? day and night. So the exegetical process doesn't happen in five minutes before you have to preach. It involves concentration, but it also involves continuation, or to continue. I'm using C's here to alliterate. And usually, for most Bible teachers, it takes the whole week, and you think about this, and I'm constantly thinking of the passage that I'm going to be teaching on, and coming up with new ideas. In fact, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and have to get up and write these things down. So that's what the passage encourages, that you continue to think about them. It doesn't come with one sitting or one four-hour session of study. In fact, it's good to get into the text and then back away and then come back to it. Just keep thinking through it. And it, it's amazing how things begin to come together as you come to the end of the process. So it's a continuing process, and it has a purpose. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to what? To get a PhD? To get a passing grade in exegesis class? <laughs> nope. Be, may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
This is what stage. We haven't got there yet in our explanation and in our course. What stage is that? Application. Or, if you want to alliterate, we have first concentrate, second continue, and third, can you think of a C there? Conform, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. Conform, or I use the word comply. Same as what Mark's got. Synonym. Complying or application. We're talking about application. I'm just alliterating here. Concentrate, continue, comply. Now, it's not as clear, the, the fourth element here. For then, in other words, after you've meditated and after you have committed to doing it, for then you will make your way prosperous. In other words, there's going to be an outcome. And what's looking at is an outcome here. And then you will have success. And in general, the outcome of our exegetical process. Now, remember, this is to the children of Israel as they are entering the land. As they enter the land, it's not just simply a military campaign. Entering the land is a spiritual endeavor, and it, it requires understanding what God is doing amongst them and what God has promised. It's applying what God has promised through Moses throughout the law and in passages earlier even than, than Moses. And it's the whole process of being willing to obey whatever God has revealed to them and with that attitude, the children of Israel are assured that they will become prosperous in the land, and then they will have great success, and in this context, military success. They are going to defeat the Canaanites. Now, the story is kind of a mixed bag in Joshua. We see some failures because they failed to do. But we also see some successes when they went around and did the most ridiculous thing you could do in a military campaign. Simply go around a city and shout, what's that going to do? Well, it so happened because they did, according to all that is written, what happened? God honored that, and the walls of Jericho did in fact fall down. That's the context of this. And we can carry that over to the 21st century in that when we are entering into the exegetical process, our way, we won't necessarily make more money, but God is going to basically bless our experiences and make us more fruitful. We'll have success. Make sense? And this leads to the fourth thing, the communication aspect, where now that I understand and now that I'm obeying, and now that I'm in fellowship with God, now I'm in a position to be able to communicate Scripture. That's the exposition part. So that's the process. That's the exegetical process. But that's the intent of meditation on Scripture. So that's our starting point. And the reason for that is because we are confident in Second Peter 1.3 in that uh, through the true knowledge of him, the Scripture is adequate to accomplish its intent in our lives. Second Peter 1.3 Scripture is adequate to deal with every area of life. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through the true knowledge of him. So that's biblical meditation, or meditation, I think, in Scripture, is another word or another description of the exegetical process that we are entering into. So let's take a look at what that process entails. First of all, we talked about in our preliminary exegesis, we talked a little bit about the text. And let me just give you a reminder, and this will be the last that we talk about, this area of the text itself. And what I said before is when you're dealing with the text, at this stage, those of you that only have access to the English, there's not a whole lot you can do in terms of determining the text. You accept the work of others at this point. But it's good to think through. One of the first things you might do If you're studying a paragraph, look at the footnotes and check to see in those footnotes, are there any textual issues in this passage? It's kind of the first thing to do. Just to be aware of the possibility that there might be a textual problem there, something that you might want to take into consideration. Most of the time, particularly in the English text, this will not be an issue at all. And you'll even forget this stage altogether. The Greek students in the Greek exegesis portion will go into this in quite a bit more detail. Let me just give you a quick overview of what's involved in the science of textual criticism. told you a little bit about that before. Textual criticism is a science that reconstructs, in fact I have a definition here, that reconstructs the any original document that has been lost particularly ancient documents that no longer exist. All of the classical Greek writings no longer exist. All we have available today are copies. So textual criticism is the science that reconstructs all the classics that are studied in virtually every major university. We, as students of the Bible, utilize the principles of textual criticism in reconstructing the biblical text, because we have none of the originals of any of the books of the Bible. And I showed you that we have nothing to worry about, because when it comes to the biblical text, we have far more data than any of the classics. Remember I told you that it's it's just magnitudes of a difference. So, a definition of textual criticism, this is by a scholar by the name of Greenlee, J.H. Greenlee. Textual criticism is the study of the copies of any written composition, any, so it doesn't just deal with the Bible, any written composition, of which the original autographs or the original documents is unknown, and basically unknown because they don't exist, for the purpose of determining the original text. In other words, for the purpose of determining what was originally written. It's a real good definition of textual criticism. And it deals with any written composition, and we apply textual criticism to the Bible. 
to reconstruct the Old Testament and also the New Testament. This is important. I don't want to get into detail here, but there are significant textual issues. I mentioned Mark chapter 16. There's a few others not as drastic as Mark chapter 16. In fact, a statistic I've got here, there's 150,000 to 200,000 different variant readings in the Bible. And I think this applies to the New Testament. I think the source deals with the New Testament. And you might say 150,000. Wow, that that means we don't have much confidence in what we have in the New Testament. Well, if you remember what I said before, 98, over 98% of those are these simple things that are easy to eliminate in terms of variance. They're like transposed letters in a, in a word that either make the word uh, into a non-word or... It's a misspelling that can easily be discarded. 98% of them are of that nature. There's less than 2% that have any impact on the biblical text itself. And even of those 2%, most of those are easily resolved through the science of textual criticism, such that, remember some of the quotes I gave you in our first introduction to this that we virtually have a very, very high degree of confidence that the biblical text that we deal with that is translated into English is virtually what was written by the original authors. So it's basically a non-issue in the New Testament, but it does come into play in some passages, and it's a good idea to, to just look for footnotes along those lines. And usually the best that we can do in the English is basically follow what the translators have supplied to you. You might compare different translations. Maybe a different translation might take a different word or phrase, just for your awareness of what this is all about. The methodology, I don't want to get into too much detail here, just to make you aware. And I've already shown you some of the manuscripts. In fact, the photo here this is just fragments, and this is sometimes all that is remaining of this copy, just fragments. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were lots of fragments like that. There are what are called unseals. These are formal capitals. These would be unsealed examples, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus. They're all capital letters, and everything is run together. Here's the actual... Vaticanus that I told you about when I gave you a little introduction to textual criticism. That's an actual text that the textual critic would use. Now, obviously, this is locked up in the Vatican, so what textual critics have are photographs of these pages. Just an example of how the text can vary. Here's a very important fragment, fragmentary portion. Chester Beattie papyri very early and for the portions it deals with very important some of them are called minuscules they're more cursive rather than all capitals and here's an example of a minuscule so we have all of these manuscripts and these are just a few examples here that are used and 
these manuscripts have different ages. In other words, some of them are closer to the first century, some of them are further away. That goes into the evaluation as to the value of these passages. The older ones tend, in other words, they tend to have variants that you can go back, and if you have an older manuscript, that's a higher priority than the ones that are closer to our time, because the more copying you have, the more possibility for for uh, people to make mistake in the copying process. So you take into account the the age, you take into account just the quality, different scribes worked at a different skill level or quality level. Some of them were not as good as others. And you also take into account uh, not only age and quality, but they come in families and so the number is also sometimes important that show the same variant. In other words, if it occurs over and over, majority doesn't always rule, but that's another criteria that is added to uh, the methodology of determining what was the original text. And there's different views. I don't want to get into those. But you evaluate. There's a couple of areas. External evidence. In other words, that these are the manuscripts themselves where you weigh them against each other in order to make a determination. And like I said, 98% of them are fairly easy to make. You also take into account internal evidence. In other words, what is the inclination of the author and how does the author's inclination... In other words, Paul maybe never uses this word. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't use it in this context, but if there's another word that is a variant that Paul does use, then maybe that adds weight to that other word as being what Paul intended, rather than this one that he never uses. So the internal evidence goes to the author himself. The external evidence goes to the the manuscripts and the quality of the manuscripts themselves. Just to give you a feel for it, this is just out of a page of the UBS text. This is a pretty standard text that that we would use with the Greek students. Here's the Greek portion. And if you don't know Greek, then you can't understand any of that. This is 1 Corinthians 2.15, Greek text. Well, we're going to look at 15 here. This is verse 15. So everything above this line is the Greek text, and then everything below the line is called the apparatus, and the Greek students will learn how to read all of all of the apparatus. So in verse 15, this pertains, so you have a little, what is that, 5 there? If you go up here, you have a footnote, 5, with this word here. So the Greek student will look at this word, see that footnote come down here, verse 15, number 5 here, and there's the word, and what this is telling them, there's some variants here. In other words, some manuscripts have ta panta, and then you go to this parallel line here. Some of them exclude the article, and then there's another set of variants here. You have ta panta or panta, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that because it's the same as these two. You go through here, and what these are telling you is these are different identifying symbols for particular manuscripts. This is a this is a papyri document. What is that, 46? That's a very important one. There's an A, there's a C, there's a D, 
There's an Aramaic translation, Ethiopian. These are church fathers. So these sources, Origen, Clement, those are church fathers, translate it, this same passage, using that, and then you have the corresponding differences in other writings. And what the Greek student will learn how to do is to weigh these, in other words, he will look at each one of these authorities or copies, put a weight to them, look at the number of them, and if you notice right off the bat, this is probably easy to determine here because there's only one, there's only one manuscript and everything else, basically church fathers that had a different reading. Anyway, that probably got into more detail there than you need, right? (laughs) That just gives you an idea. We've already looked at the different kinds of unintentional errors, faulty eyesight, and I described some of those, parablepsis, hypography. These are unintentional errors of scribes, and we talked about sometimes a scribe might mistake a dalit for a resh if he's dealing with the Old Testament, or a bait with a cough just by missing that little tiny seraph. So faulty hearing, errors of the mind, substitutions, errors of judgment, different types of errors. Okay, that's textual criticism. One more, One last thing on that. The basic principles... Number one is to choose the reading which explains the origin of all the others. In other words, if you can explain where all the others came about and show that it varies from what you think is the right reading or the one that the the writer intended, if you can explain all the others, then that's probably the correct one. Using the simple example, for example... Let's say you have a misspelling, and there's three manuscripts that have the same misspelling, but you can explain it as a misspelling because it just doesn't make sense. So you discard that, and you choose the one that is spelled right. That's an ex- kind of an easy example to explain. Another criteria that is used, the more difficult reading is preferred. In other words, if you have two variants, because what scribes tend to do is they tend to try to harmonize. They tend to tend to smooth out passages. So in the copying processes, this is their tendency. So this leads you to finding the more difficult reading. The shorter reading is preferred because scribes have a tendency of expanding rather than diminishing passages. They want to make sure they put more than what is there rather than less. Those are your basic principles. And like I said, uh, the Those of you that only have access to the English text, you can't do a whole lot of textual criticism. You can't do any, basically. Number two on there again. Why is the more difficult reading preferred? Yeah, the more difficult reading is because scribes have a tendency to, in their mind, smooth the text or correct the text. If it's more difficult, in other words, it almost, to the scribe, it doesn't seem right, so he tries to correct it. That's the tendency of the scribes. Now, sometimes this other considerations override that, but these are some basic principles of textual criticism. Okay, there's the text. Secondly, 
we want to do word studies. In other words, you come to a word that uh, either you don't understand or a word that is crucial in the text. Now you decide that you want to do a word study. Why don't we at this point take a break and then we'll come and talk about word studies.